the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. The outer sections are descriptions of the rituals Israel was to practice in God's holy presence. The next inner sections focus on the role of Israel's priests as mediators between God and Israel. And inside of that are two matching sections that focus on Israel's purity. And then right here at the center of the book, there's a key ritual, the Day of Atonement, that brings the whole book together. The book concludes with a short section where Moses calls on Israel to be faithful to this covenant. Let's dive into the book. The first section explores the five main types of ritual sacrifices that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church again. It's good to have you with us. And welcome to, um, you go, wow, what did I just see and what did I just fit? We're going to unpack all of that for you today. Let me introduce myself. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, my name is Wayne and I'm part of the pastoral team we're very glad you're here in the West Auditorium to those who are gathering in the East Auditorium and to everybody that's joining us online. It's a privilege to have you here today. And I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible, so close to the front of the book. And uh, you're going to want, you're going to, well, you're going to want to read it with me because it's, well, it's gory. How's that? How's that, how's that for a good reason to read it? Okay, so... What we're going to do today is we're going to review some laws from Scripture. Leviticus chapter 4 is what we're going to read in just a minute. But um, we're, we're going to look at some laws from a book that um, 
probably most people, many people, overlook when they're reading the Bible. Because at first glance, some of the statements that we're going to see are um, odd. Might be a good way to put it, given our contemporary times. And, and they're laws, ancient laws. But I would point out that while some laws from the past seem odd from our eyes and ears, we have some laws around these days that are odd to our eyes and ears as well. For example, in Quitman, Georgia, our Georgian brothers and sisters, did you know it's against the law to allow chickens to cross the road in Quitman, Georgia? I don't know why exactly. Apparently the law wants owners to take their chickens with great seriousness, I suppose. As a matter of fact, Georgia has an interesting series of laws about chickens. For example, in, in Gainesville, Georgia, if you're going to eat fried chicken, it's against the law to eat it using a fork. <laughs> What's with that? This is what it says. Keep your forks away from your fried chicken because our chicken is a culinary delicacy sacred to our municipality. Oh, Aren't they uppity down there? Well, I see. But in Arizona, before we go too far or get, start point, looking down our nose and saying, look at us Illinoisans, or I, mean, I guess we have all have sorts of problems. Like in, 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 in Arizona, it's illegal to allow your donkey to sleep in your bathtub after 7 p.m., which would indicate it's okay up till 6.59 p.m., but illegal after, 11, after 7 p.m. Here's, here's how the law was brought into, into effect as a result of a public nuisance case in 1924. Apparently, some fellow in 1924 used to allow his donkey to sleep in his bathtub. Why? I have no idea. But a local dam broke loose, flooded the town, and the poor donkey got swept a mile down river, and it took a lot of manpower and municipal or village dollars to rescue the donkey. So with it, they, they said, you can no longer have your donkey sleep in your bathtub after 7 p.m., as if somehow they knew that the dams would always break after 7 p.m. Doesn't make sense. In Scotland, somebody comes knocking on your door needing a bathroom. It's illegal to deny them entry. What? That's right. Somebody knocks on the door and says, I need to use the potty. You've got to let them in. I would assume that means that every house in Scotland has at least one bathroom guest ready at all times. Because we all know sometimes bathrooms are not always guest ready. Or in Sarpino, France, it's illegal to die before you purchase a burial plot. Like, what are they going to do to you if you do die before you buy a burial plot? You know, I don't know how you punish somebody who's already horizontal. I don't get that. In Samoa, gentlemen, catch this, it is illegal to forget your wife's birthday. In America, it's just stupid. But, it, <laughs> but in Samoa... I want to, how do they, how do, what's the, what's the punishment? Actually, I don't want to know the punishment. I'm just going to move forward and say, illegal, stupid, don't do it, all right? So why am I pointing out these crazy ideas and laws? Because we're starting a five-week series today, reading through the book of the, the book of Leviticus. And it's often a book that I say that is overlooked by Bible readers. And um, we, we would say, oh man, these codes are so, they're so, these, these rules, they're so obscure and I, they don't apply to our contemporary times. But before you get there, I acknowledge we're going to read about a lot of law, laws, and there are moments where we're going to say, man, that is really obscure, but I promise you it applies to our day and to our lives. 
See, I, I come across Leviticus usually as I'm reading through my Bible every year. I kind of try to get through the Bible in a year, though I will tell you. Last year, or actually, it, when I started it, I, last, it took me three years to get through it because I just kept getting bogged down. So it's, my goal is to get through it every year, but when I say I bog, get bogged down, I'll go, well, what about that? And I kind of do some side research and everything. And nonetheless, when I do my read through the Bible, I always come across Leviticus and it often reminds me of that movie, National Treasure. Are you familiar with that movie? It features Nicolas Cage playing Benjamin Gates, who's an, a historian and some sort of amateur cryptologist. And he and some friends are looking for some lost treasure that's buried somewhere or other of metals and jewelry and artwork and statues, all sorts of famous things that are lost. And if you've seen the movie, you know how they find it. They have to... They discover there are codes to the treasure, and to where the treasure's location, embedded in the original Declaration of Independence. So that means they have to break into the U.S. National Archives building, steal the, um, the, the Declaration of Independence, the original one, and, and then they can figure out it's got the codes just... They have to have special glasses and all that sort of stuff. And at times, wandering through Leviticus can feel like that adventure and that obscure. So I'm inviting you for the next few weeks to look in and see the codes, like they did in that movie. Look in with some new eyes, some new ways of approaching, and um, see what you can learn. So as you left worship last week, or as you're leaving worship today, or online, this is available, we got one of these. And it's just a, a simple bookmark that gives you where you should be reading if you want to follow along with what I'm preaching and the other staff are preaching in the coming weeks. We're going to be to catch up, if you want, this week, we're going to be preaching through chapter 10 of next week. This week is through chapter 7, next week of ch through chapter 10. So you can catch up and read and go, I don't understand it. Fair enough. We're going to explain it as we go week by week. And, and uh, parents, just as you bring your kids with you into worship, it is a book that you might need to explain to your kids a little bit. And so with that in mind, read with me Leviticus chapter 4 today. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. So if somebody sins un unintentionally, like for example, if an anointed si priest sins unintentionally, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. What's he supposed to do with that? Well, he's to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. The tent of meeting was this... Um, traveling worship space that they had. And um, if we had time, we could draw the details of it. But it's, 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 it's basically a tent inside a tent inside a tent. And it's where um, the presence of the Lord was. And so this called the tent of meeting, often referred to as the tabernacle, capital T. And so this priest, if he has sinned unintentionally, is to bring that to the tent of meeting. He's to lay his hand on its head in front of the tent of meeting and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then, after that's happened, he's to take uh, some of the bull's blood and carry it inside the tent. And then this is where it gets even more gruesome, or weird, if you will, from our perspective, is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. So the sanctuary, the inner space, had a curtain in front of it. He used to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You go, oh, blood? Who cleans that up? What happens to it? The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting. So now he's putting blood elsewhere. 
in our day of COVID, in our day of HIV, in our day of all the sorts of stuff that goes around, man, we, we go, we wouldn't do this. The rest of the bull's blood he shall now pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now he's back in front of the tent of the meeting going, man, it's certainly, this whole thing, gruesome, messy, bloody, and this is if the priest does something wrong. And we go, this is how you're supposed to worship? And some of you thought that sometimes here at First Christian Church we did things a little bit out of the ordinary in worship. Man, imagine that. What's going on here with all this blood and gore and mess? And if you've read through the first seven chapters this week, you saw it over and over again. Through chapter 10 this week, you're going to see it. What's with this? Well, maybe a brief history might help you. I'm not going to be so brief with it, but it's a brief history if you nonetheless. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of ancient Israel. The Jewish nation had been slaves in Egypt for four centuries, for 400 years. And then through a series of events and miracles, the Egyptians released them from slavery. That was right after the Jewish nation celebrated the Passover for the very first time. The Passover was an event, a horrific national tragedy in Egypt. When the death angel passed over the nation of Egypt and every firstborn in every family died that night, except in the Jewish families because the death angel passed over the Jewish families. And with that, the Egyptians were so, you can imagine, legitimately horrified, they said to the Jews, please leave. And so they left the next day and the days thereafter. And these were the days of what we, what, if you've read, know that story, these are the days of the Red Sea crossing and the miracles and all that sort of stuff. And you can think of it this way. There was Passover, and then they left on the 14th day, the scriptures tell us, on the 14th day, we actually have a date, the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Nisan is the first month of the ancient Jewish calendar. It's really, it's the beginning of spring, so it would equate here in North America, you could say that they're leaving on like the 14th or the 1st of April, I mean the 14th of March, the 1st of April, somewhere right around there, okay? They're leaving Egypt, and then for the next two months or so, the nation wanders through the wilderness to eventually arrive at Mount Sinai. When they got to Mount Sinai, Mo Moses, the leader of uh, the Jewish nation, begins to go up the mountain and get instructions from God and about how God would say to them, now as free people, here's how you should organize your national life. Here's how you should think. In other words, this is the ethos of how you should do life. And this is how you should act as a people. And they stayed there for the better part of a year, arriving, if you will, in the third month after Nisan. And then they stayed there all the way through the next Passover celebration. So Passover number one is in Egypt. Passover number two is now out in the wilderness. And it was only after the second Passover that they actually began the trek toward the promised land. And so we go, well, what happened between when they arrived at Mount Sinai and after the second Passover? What did they do? Well, in, in those months, that was what it took for Moses to bring the nation together as one cohesive unit. Remember, think about this. For 400 years, this nation of about a million people had been slaves. And within the period of less than one year, actually about nine months or so, they learn that they are free and that they get to choose to live as they wish. And in the midst of that new choice, 
God says, choose this lifestyle. Choose to have a lifestyle that honors me. And so various points throughout the year to figure out what that was, Moses would go up to the mountain. Maybe he'd spend a day up there. Maybe he'd spend a week up there. But over those, that year, he spent basically 80 days up on Mount Sinai. And he, he, he would come back with a lot of things for them to learn. Because in those, that period of time as Moses went up and, and would come back, they, they would do things like this. They, would take, they took a census. That's the book of Numbers. The tabernacle, that tent of meeting that traveled with him, it was built. It's, it's the place of worship. They set up their military. They divided, you know, these are the fighting troops, these are the defensive troops, and they sort of got all that together. The civic laws were established. Remember, they hadn't been a nation. Had no national sense of who we are. There was no federal way of managing things. So they got to do all that in less than a year. Moses goes up and only comes back with civic laws, but he also came back with religious laws, like things like the Ten Commandments. And this is when Leviticus was put in place, the rules and procedures, the ways of doing worship, if you will. And you can think of it this way, that this nation of slaves has had a major thought shift all within one year. It's amazing when you think about it. They go from slavery to being a nation on the move with a new governing polity, an established and formidable military that the nations around them are now starting to worry about. They're on the move, a burgeoning national way of thinking and an ethos and a way in which we're going to say, we're going to take on new opportunities. That's developing. And beyond that, they now have a recognized religion for us as Jewish people that we can all ascribe to. And it is so different than any nation, known or unknown, any tribe that's around us. We are different. We are set apart now from other nations because what God has done within us. And Leviticus is important because it shows how Israel was different, how Israel was set apart, how Israel was, in fact, holy. And that's what holiness means. Holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means we're going to be different than everybody else. And how were they different? Well, they were monotheistic. Now, this is, I'm going, Wayne, this is a whole lot of history here. I get it, but hang with me. We're going to get somewhere with this, okay? They agreed to take on the Ten Commandments. The first, ten, the first four of the Ten Commandments are about God. The second ones are about the last six, pardon me. The last six are about dealing with people. And in the first ten of the Ten Commandments, it's very plain. If you're going to follow me, God says, you're going to declare that there is only one God. There's only one true living God. All the other gods are dead, which is true. Can I tell you, friends, that was a whole new worldview. I mean, for us, here in the Western world, where we have, many of us have been raised in at least some sort of Judeo-Christian environment of contemporary times, and particularly if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then hearing there is only one God, well, doesn't everybody think like that? No. And particularly in those days, it was almost like it was crazy. But in that setting, monotheism was a novel idea. It was a brand new idea. And you could, so you could say that one of the codes to look for in the book of Leviticus is this, that it shows that Israel was a unique community in the ancient world. Why? Because they believed there was only one God. And since they were different, since they were set apart, they needed to know how to respond to this one true God. They needed to know how to live how to worship, how to, approach the, how to approach the world around them, 
all while holding true to this understanding, there's only one God. And I, I would invite you, can you hear their voices centuries later? Can you hear them calling out to us through the words of Leviticus? We only acknowledge the true God, the God who has brought us up out of slavery through many miracles. Can you hear it? The God who changed our viewpoint of our nation's future. That's the God we will serve. We have a new life approach. Leviticus is the code to that new life approach. It helps us answer this question. What, does God, what did God require of the nation of Israel, or if you will, each individual Israelite, to be holy and to be set apart? And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Leviticus has two statements. If you want to know how to live, love God, love others. Now, does that sound contemporary? Does that sound like where we are these days? I mean, this understanding of Leviticus was echoed by Jesus centuries later. One day, a religious leader comes to him and says, Jesus, it, can you give us the summation of how we should live? And you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes back to Leviticus. He answers with two statements, two quotes, both from Leviticus. He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first thing he says. And then secondly, he says, and, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And you see those two statements in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 19, we read this, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be set apart, acknowledge me. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. So here you have Jesus, the Savior who we follow, the one who we say his blood has forgiven, has forgiven our sins. If Jesus says the, the primary way to do life is love God, love others, and if he is quoting Leviticus in that regard, maybe we should know a little bit about Leviticus. So throughout our time in Leviticus, in the next few weeks, you're going to see how the nation chose to be holy, serving a holy set-apart God, as well as how they should treat each other. But I am certain that in the meanwhile, you're all going, but what about Leviticus chapter 4? I mean, what about all this business of the blood and what a priest has to do if he, it is, they are all he's, they're all male, uh, if, if, if a priest does something wrong unintentionally? What should he do? It says this, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, so it's his sin that is bringing guilt on, it's impacting other people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and then he does all that gruesome stuff. He lays his hand on its head, and he slaughters it before the Lord. And it's, this is worship? This is church? I mean, if you read those passages that you found on your bookmark this past week, did you notice there's a lot of blood and gore and mess? Oh. Over and over again, to varying degrees, depending on who it is and what they've done wrong and whether or not they have money or don't have money. Or, I mean, there's all kinds of rules and regulations, but you get this over and over again. An animal of some sort loses its life for sin, and then there's smoke on the altar and there's burned offerings, and there are carcasses everywhere. There are smells and scenes that boggle the mind. You know, some ancient texts that we have outside of Scripture, like these, these um, where, where historians from the ancient world are telling us what, what actually took place, 
Do you know, th there's some ancient texts that describe these scenes in front of uh, the tabernacle and later the temple particularly as absolutely gory as, if you will, the priests wading through blood and carcasses everywhere. And we've always gone, people go, oh, well, just recently, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, in regarding a different period in Israel's history, not Leviticus period, but later on, long story, um, when they, at that point they were still sacrificing. Uh, and the reason they don't sacrifice today is because they don't have a temple. But there is a plan in Israel. As soon as they have a temple, they will begin their sacrifices again. Be mindful of that. But outside Jerusalem, to, uh, more recently, archaeologists were going through an old ancient garbage dump. And look at this photo. They came across a huge slew of excavated animal bones that were obviously used in um, sacrificial worship. And what was interesting about that is they looked at the DNA and the, the composition of all those animals. The animals actually come from all places around, not just in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem, but all around, if you will, the known world at that time where you've got Jewish people bringing animals into Jerusalem. Again, this is a later period of time. Bringing animals into Jerusalem and having them, if you will, sacrificed there. They, it's indicated that you've got Jewish people all around the world making these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. All used in sacrificial offerings. And I have to ask the question, does, does it seem odd and gruesome to our contemporary ears and our contemporary eyes? Of course. But friends, reading between the lines, there, there, there's something in Leviticus about sin and sacrifices and offerings that doesn't show up in our English Bible. We get, up, we get sort of hung up on the rules and the sights and the smells and the gore, but if you knew a little bit of Hebrew and could read from the ancient Hebrew text, it would make more sense. There's a word in Hebrew, goban. Stresses on the second syllable, goban. It means to bring near. Now, if I can, just a brief Hebrew lesson. You can see goban. You read from right to left, and you notice it's got four characters, right? And you go, but goban's got a whole lot more than four characters. Well, in, in the ancient world, um, paper, papyrus, was very expensive. So consequently, as the scribes were writing, they simply left out the vowels. Ancient Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. The vowels in that particular text are the little like dots and the markings and everything. That's a more modern version of how Goban is, is actually written. So when you read ancient Hebrew, you actually just read without the vowels. You have to know what they are. You, you could do that if you read, were to read English and just read the word without the vowels. You'd be able to figure it out. We don't have... It's used a lot in Leviticus. And we do not have an English equivalent word to describe that. It's kind of like... Um, if you go to Sweden, you'll hear this word over and over again. Vashugud, vashugud, vashugud. We have no English equivalent for vashugud. Vashugud means um, please be seated... It means um, you're welcome. It means you go first. It means different things depending on, on the circumstances. In Polish, it's Prussia. It, it, means, it means it's a way of being kind, and we don't have an English word for it. So there are these words throughout different languages that can't translate. And it's the same thing here in, with this Hebrew word. And, and because we have no English equivalent, when we read Leviticus, we're kind of left a little bit wanting. When you see the word sacrifice and offerings, that's the closest cinnamon that we have. 
And of course, the Hebrew word does involve these animals dying. It does involve sacrifice. It does involve offering. But it goes beyond those English words. It has to do with this. These sacrifices and these offerings are not the point. But they are vehicles to draw and come close and get near to God. So when you read the word sacrifice or offering in the coming weeks, in the book of Leviticus, think about it. This is how you come near to God. And I want you to hang on to that. How do you get near to God? And I want to tell you that this, that here we are, um, 25 minutes into my sermon, and I'm just done with the introduction. Strap in, we've got another 30 minutes to go yet. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I get that. Because... All of that information to this point is, is really the lead up to one main idea for us today when it comes to these offerings and sacrifices, this business of coming near to God. See, we could get very detailed. We could spend weeks on the various kinds of offerings that they would have, the various kinds of sacrifices they would have within the book of Leviticus. We could talk about the burnt offering and the grain offering, the peace offering, a wave offering, an ancient way in which... What we would do these days, we'd take our flashlights on our iPhones and, and do this back and forth at a concert. It was literally a wave offering where people would wave something before the Lord as a thank offering. I mean, we could spend lots of times on all those, the sin offering, the guilt offering. The list goes on and on. But for today, it'll have to wait for another time with, this mind, with being mindful of this. If the goal was to help each individual draw near to God, if the goal of a sacrifice or an offering was for an individual sinner to gain access to God's grace, if the goal of an offering was for anyone within the nation to get close to God, then think about this. Surely the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrificial offering, surely it is powerful in our lives and in the long-term impact and effects of Leviticus. Because that sort of understanding, it, it elicits this powerful question. How do you draw near to God? How do I draw near to God? The ancient people was through all these rules. See, in, the, in, in Leviticus, in the midst of the gore, in the midst of the blood, the mess, God provided a way to get close to the divine. You got this mess, priests wading through it. And in the midst of it, God provides a way out of the struggle to say, I'm not holy enough to be with God. Somehow or other, I would like to know God. I would God brings order out of the struggle. And in the death of Jesus Christ, Scripture says once and for all, like no more sacrifices, once and done and for all people, in the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial offering death practices of Leviticus, they are completed. They're not needed anymore. Because Jesus' cross is the fulfillment of all the former patterns of Levitical worship. And you know what? The New Testament says this for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says this. In Jesus, through Jesus, while talking about Leviticus, the book of Hebrews says, in Jesus, we have a better life approach, a better hope, and it's introduced through Jesus. And then in Greek, now we're moving into the New Testament period and it's actually written in Greek and we have a way of just taking the Greek word right there. And you know what the word is? What we would say in English, draw near to God. Leviticus, we can't really see it there because the word we can't, this Gorbon, we can't understand it. But you get to Greek and you get to Hebrews and you know what? Suddenly the two things are tied together. 
that in Jesus we have a better life approach, a better hope is introduced, and through that, what happens? We draw near to God. So with that, I'd invite you to stand here today. Because, you sort of time if you'd stand as well, please. And those of you at home, take a posture that feels good for you, okay? I wanted to get you to stand so that you would just hear this very clearly, all right? That we're going to go places this week. And uh, you're going to go and read chapter 10, through chapter 10 this week. Uh, you're going to go as a congregation. We go with our mission in mind that we, we want to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We want to grow and serve together. And we're going to do all of that. But the reason I wanted you to stand today is to listen very clearly. Think this through. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not yet, I've got some really cool information for you. The reason that Jesus died is found in Leviticus. And the reason that Jesus died is so that you, so that I, so that everybody online, why did Jesus die? So that we could draw near to God. God bless you. Have a great week.